podcast by artists for artists we talk cash shit about everything sometimes we get messy and it all counts as art because we say so i'm mel i'm black and a woman and an artist or so says my tax returns this week i'm a notes app apology pr specialist i sell dei statements on the white market and i'm also an executive producer on the soon-to-be hit reality tv show dating while black yo what's up maximiliano here um my bio is in flux like the universe (laughs) um for for everybody uh listening at home and wondering this is how you can support that turner project by becoming a patron you can check out our patreon we have our exclusive book book of sedition zines and our explicit behind the paywall podcast where we get extra messy you can shop our etsy store which is full of totes, buttons, and various NTP publications, including Black Abbey, about the Black Abbey Artist Residency. Shout out Sharita Town. Find us on iTunes and all streaming platforms. Leave a review, send a comment, questions to natturnerproject0 at gmail.com. All right, so today we are really excited to be talking with someone we've had the pleasure of working with and whose work we've been appreciative of for quite some time. Rue. Hi, Rue. How's it going? All right. All right. How y'all doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Born in San Francisco, Rue has been in Portland for the last 15 years and spent the last five curating space for queer and trans communities affected by white supremacy to host exhibitions, art programming, political education, and direct action through Ori Gallery. After running an independent tattoo practice for the past six years, they joined Constellation Tattoo Collective in the summer of 2020, focusing on communities excluded from tattooing because of colonization, misogynoir, and ableism. A community educator, organizer, and general rabble-rouser, they are currently a member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party and are always working collaboratively with liberation-minded folks. So, again, welcome, Rue. Um, yeah, yay, thanks for being here. 
Um, and before we get started, I would just like to say that's a re like a, a really good job kind of encapsulating all of the things that you do into like two, like three short sentences, because I know a little bit about the work that you do. And there's so much going on that I'm just impressed that you were able to get it into one paragraph. That's that's a skill. <laughs> Again, it's always in flux. You know, I feel like um, uh, I got to work with our new curator, Ella Ray, who is doing a lot of the copywriting for a group show that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And the work that she did on that buyout, I'm like, ooh, thanks, babe. I'm gonna steal all that language. <laughs> you made me sound fancy. <laughs> Apparently, I'm a transdisciplinary artist, and I'm like, ooh. That's at least, you know, another $10,000 on my CV. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're going to start by asking the question that we always ask now. Um, how are you? How are you doing during all of this? Oof. You know, I, I really like to start off that, that question with like, you know, I'm here. I am still mostly made of carbon and water. I am functioning. My bone marrow game is on point. <laughs> All of these things, I'm happy for the functionality of my body in the like, it's a mess, y'all. This is a mess. <laughs> I don't think there's any other way to describe it. We've been in this mess for like two years. And like, I think every, myself and every other Negro I know, we're fucking tired. Like, I heard this quote the other day that said the, all of the women inside of me are tired. Yeah. <laughs> Felt that in my gut. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I feel like I'm alive as a point of belligerency at this point. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to let them kill me. Um, I feel like that's the kind of attitude I have to have because, like, uh, my big boy job is with the government now. So I have to have that attitude. Yeah. Um, what kinds of things are you doing to, like, cope? Like, are, are you, are you uh, growing plants or, like... Yeah. <laughs> I actually just bought a passion flower vine for my partner for Valentine's Day. Oh. And I'm really, really excited. Wait, wait, do they know? Is this like a spoiler? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I surprised them with it last night. Okay. I was surprised <laughs> that I found one because there's one growing actually across the street from Ori on Mississippi. Oh. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I had no idea that they could thrive up here. So I'm like really excited. But yeah, I have too many plants. They're everywhere. You're good uh, with plants. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, let me nurture something, not metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my plants, our cat, like, um, I feel like, you know, food has been a really big point of joy. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the one thing where I'm just like, it, it brings out that joy that I used to have pre-pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's one of the few ways we can still be like intimate with each other. Yeah. Like folks dropping off food for this, that, or the other thing has has kind of there's a resurgence of that. So I feel like that has really been getting me through um, people's cooking, um, having access to movement. Like since I'm really, really like high quarantine all the time, like having a, a studio space where I can go and move. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I'm over at um, Headwater Studio, the Water and the Desert Desert Crew is doing a really, really dope job of providing free residencies for artists just to use that space, that studio space to keep it activated and like give yeah. folks a chance to like roll around on the floor and be weird. <laughs> that's what I need. Wow, that's wonderful. 
Okay. Yeah, hell yeah. I'm currently filling out my uh, Headwaters paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> what are you planning to do in there? Um, movement. I wouldn't call any of my movements dance. It's not that skilled, um, but <laughs> some dance-like movements. <laughs> you know, I feel like, you know, call it dance. Because really, like, I spent so long convincing myself that I wasn't a real dancer even though I was being paid professionally to do it in clubs and like people considered me a dancer. Like I know I was like, oh no, I'm just doing it. You know, I'm not fancy. I'm not professional. I don't have any training. I don't have $30,000 worth of ballet school, <laughs> but like, fuck it. I'm a dancer. Like you're a dancer. Movement is dance. Like, and it's so intrinsic to like African identity. I'm just like, take it. Mm. Snatch it. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I'm so interested by yeah, so many of the things you do um but I want to start by hearing more about you and like tattooing like um how did you first like come to tattooing what made you want to start tattooing um how has tattooing been in Portland um have you tattooed other places um yeah I'm gonna you know I'll be real real honest I saw Foxfire in a tender adolescent phase of my life and Angelina Jolie stick and poke and Jenny Shimizu was a root. <laughs> I was like, oh yes, I need to go be a hot dyke in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> That's how I'm going to make a name for myself. Um, but in all actuality, I really um, have always been drawn to like body arts and really fascinated by it. And, you know, when I was living in San Francisco, my mom took me to a tattoo convention and I saw some work that like just blew my mind these like cover-up pieces on folks who had had double mastectomies and I was like wow I had never thought of body art as a way to like you know reclaim your body after such trauma and such like a dramatic physical shift so I was like that's that's my calling that's what I need to do I have to heal people in this way I have to be like a practitioner in this way um so that was like kind of my inspiration and what led me to start seeking out, how do I do this? You know, I, I can't just do stick and pokes because I'm living with my parents. So what do I, how do I find my way into this industry? Um, and it was really, really difficult. I had a lot of people like looking at me like up and down and being like, get the fuck out of here, kid. Um, until I went to a very, very racist tattoo school, uh, which I won't mention by name because I don't want to bring that energy into this podcast. <laughs> but like, it, it's, I feel like my experience is pretty typical. You know, the other black uh, and like, you know, non-white tattoo artists I've met along the way have all expressed the same thing that every artist of color in Portland has experienced, which is like, it's very tokenizy, very gatekeepy. I feel like, you know, tattooing in and of itself is very bro-y. It has a very strong white supremacist history, right? Especially in America, even though it is an indigenous practice that belongs to us right? has belonged to us for thousands of years. Um, but yeah, you have to contend among that. I was, you know, yelling at racists in tattoo school and like dealing with people making rape jokes while I'm working on my clients. And like, you know, all of that really drove me to be like, no, I am creating a safe space where people can feel comfortable, <laughs> right? And they don't feel like, you know, something randomly racist is going to happen because of whoever is around me, right? Um, that's really difficult I've worked really really hard to create that and to find a space you know with like-minded artists who are really really dedicated to doing better um it's taken a while you know I've been tattooing for almost 13 years now like right since I got here basically um 
And a lot of that has been like, you know, not tattooing has been like struggling to find a place where I can safely practice. Um, And I'm really grateful to have that now and to be able to say, to confidently say, yes, come on over. I know nothing fucked up is going to happen to you in this space. I can curate this. I have control over it. Um, So yeah, it's been just like a really precious thing. And especially now since um, I I got this Black Lives Matter grant, (laughs) I hate saying this out loud, (laughs) but I got the Black Lives Matter grant as part of this group show with um, the Jordan Schnitzer, whatever, whatever. and I decided for part of that grant that that was going to pay for me to just give Black folks tattoos for free. Oh. And I would document the process. Um, and that was such a powerful process in and of itself. I met just so many, I can't even, I'm going to start to cry when I think about the clients that I met through this process. But um, it really showed me, I was like, damn, I, I kind of don't want to charge anymore. Like, I want to find a way to keep tattooing Black folks for free mm-hmm. just because it's been such like a spiritually and like, you know, metaphysically rewarding shift in my practice. I'm just like, this is something I want to create and give to people. Um, So finding out right now, I'm figuring out how do I balance that and eat? (laughs) You know, it would be nice to be able to do both. Um, But yeah, stop me if I'm babbling too much. No, not at all. How long has that that project been going on of the tattooing Black people? Um, Documenting it. I think last summer was when I started. I cannot remember when we got the grant. Time is a blur. Um, Cause everything keeps being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But um, yeah, that work is on display now at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum at PSU if anyone wants to go see it. Uh, but it really tight. a dope ass show that's all black artists. Some really, really cool installation art that I'm just so proud to be like next to. Um, um. When I think about like the tattoo industry, I, to me, as you've mentioned, it's one of those industries that's like wrought with um, kind of white supremacy that's kind of built into like the foundational practice of it, like much like the medical industry. Um, and I think a lot about like how few tattoo artists know how to tattoo dark skin and that sort of thing. Um, I, I, what kinds of things have you had to contend with in that regard and sort of like offsetting that sort of like white supremacy and anti-blackness built into the industry of tattooing? I mean, I couldn't do anything without like other tattoo artists, right? Like other black and brown tattoo artists who are like doing the thing. I'll shout out uh, Tan Parker of Ink the Diaspora was really, really huge in uh, helping me kind of break down that isolation um, and I got the chance to meet her during one of my like Brooklyn residencies. And it was just like the first time I had gotten to sit down with another black femme tattoo artist <laughs> and just like shoot the shit. And that like, is something we take for granted because you don't just get to like hang around the shop with like people who look like you. And like, I was elated, you know, I felt that like that Portland Negro feeling where it's like, ooh, there's a one that's a one like me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to deal with like ridiculous homophobia and you know misogyny just to deal to be able to commune with someone who has the same skin color as me Um, and that really sucks is like run into like cis black dudes who just have an attitude in the industry and who don't have any space for like anyone queer or femme to like muck up the what they've built for themselves Mm -hmm. it hurts it's like really really painful (laughs) but that doesn't overshadow all the like really really amazing folks that um are working to like, 
you know, hold panels, hold educational systems to like lift that burden. Cause I felt like I was doing it by myself <laughs> in just like, you know, a lot of my work was just talking to clients and being like, no, I'm sorry. What well, that person told you was a lie. I'm sorry. They did that to your skin. You Aww. can do a, B and C, you know, here's, you know, I know what a keloid is, you know, <laughs> like simple shit like that. Um, and just like telling you like, no, you're not stupid. I'm sorry that person did that to you. And it's a lot of like trauma stewardship, like a lot um, because, you know, we hold so much in our bodies and even like, you know, I say, even if I'm tattooing a dick on somebody's ankle, that's still like an intimate experience I'm having with that person. I'm still breaking your skin and making you bleed and like changing your body like permanently. <laughs> so like there needs to be trust. There needs to be like, there's magic there, right? That's sacred. Um, so it should be treated as such, no matter what you're doing. Um, I did, I do have a tattoo from you. Um, I think it was in 2018, 2019, I don't remember anymore, but a few years ago, you tattooed me. Um, are there other like black tattoo, tattoo artists in Portland that you would recommend? Oh gosh, I had, <laughs> I had an Instagram list that I totally forgot. But yeah, there's um, there's so many more black and brown tattoo artists in Portland than there were before. Um, off the top of my head, um, Art Thou Malika is a really amazing like fat black tattoo artist who's coming up in the world. Um, uh, in Portland, there is an indigenous and black owned tattoo shop, Tattoo 34 um, on Hawthorne. Um, dope folks doing really great work and um, Jasmanian Devils, another black femme tattoo artist. Like, it's so nice to not be the only one anymore to feel like, you know, I can say like, oh yes, please go to all of these people because I don't do that style, right? I don't have the burden of feeling like I have to serve every single Negro looking for a black tattoo artist in Portland. Um, but yeah, I can provide a more comprehensive list if y'all want to include that afterwards. Yeah, um, if you um, send us a list, we can put it in the show notes. For um, sure. Um, full disclosure, I don't have a tattoo, but one of the things I definitely want to do when it's uh, less pandemic-y out there is get one. But I'm also a person who like, I'm, I have a lot of skin issues and I just never, I always wanted a black tattoo artist who knew black skin. So, I mean, that's definitely something that I, I want to be doing within the next year or so. So I mean, hey, when you're ready, you're ready. There's no pressure. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting older, so there's a little bit of pressure, I think. So yeah, we're not that far apart in age, are we? I mean, um, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm 38. I'm, I'm turning 39 this year. I'm 42. So Just look at aging like fucking fine wine over here. I would <laughs> card us for Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> Um, speaking of age, um, you have been in Portland for quite some time. Um, I feel like you've had a front seat to like how much has changed even in the last decade, um, in the landscape of Portland. Like, like what, what are some of the changes that you've seen, whether they're like good or bad in the past, like 13 years, 15 years that you've been here? Um, I'm glad that there's, it's browner up here statistically mm. um that's been nice um i've noticed um, tell me if y'all have noticed this too that there's this weird pipeline between like portland oakland houston and brooklyn <laughs> and every time someone gets too many x's in one town they just you know circulate out <laughs> <That's what happens. laughs> 
Um, anyway, that's one pattern I've picked up on. Um, I definitely feel like, I don't know, liberalism morphs so interestingly. And um, I will say that I had the unique experience of coming into my political consciousness in Portland. Mm-hmm. Fucking weird, I'll admit it. And like, it um, definitely opened my eyes to a lot of my own internalized anti-Blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but like once I, once I did start to wake up a little bit, it was like realizing you're in a zombie movie. And then I was like, oh shit, I really felt trapped. And I feel like that's when I started to dig my heels in and like actually start to like quote organize and really try to like build a community intentionally. Um, but oof, yeah, I'd say like the way that like liberalism has like moved and shifted to like morph itself into something that can survive, you know, um, is really bonkers. And I say, we've had the same mayor like five times. Like, I don't know if y'all have seen that meme going around that has like Sam Adams, like (laughs) the door and what's his nuts. And they like literally all look like the same man. I can't even remember the third one. They just all look alike. And it's like, (laughs) I realized that I had like a little, it was like a little, let's call it the Wheeler effect instead of the Mandela effect. I'm just like I realized I haven't really realized who was our political leaders at any given point in time because I always assumed it was the same dude <laughs> until I started like you know being more involved and like paying attention um but yeah folks really like to pivot and shift their their supremacy whatever supremacy we're talking about um and I feel like that the liberal beast has been really something to contend with. And I feel like what I paid the most attention to in Portland. Do you feel that the, um, th- that environment um, of like liberalism, the double-edged sword of liberalism and um, anti-blackness is what contributed directly to your, your kind of political awakening? Like, do you feel like, yeah. Oh, 100%. Like once I like actually started like seeing it a little more clearly. I was like, oh shit, this is y'all, this is a mess, can we please? (laughs) Like you love our food and you love our clothes but you really don't love us at all. Like, and it's so, it's that weird like conditional like be nice to me or I'm not gonna be an ally. Like that thing is real, real bad here. Like people want the clout so badly of being like, the wokest, not realizing that woke was a joke to begin with, <laughs> which is, that was real funny, y'all. I don't know if you'll like experience that wave of white people discovering the word woke, specifically yeah. here in Portland, yeah. but oh, they were, they were using it. They were just using it like unironically. <laughs> it's just like, you know, when like, I don't know if y'all experienced this, if you work with teenagers at all, but like the phenomenon of like misusing like popular terms to piss off teenagers. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's what I felt like. I felt like all the grownups around me were purposefully misusing language oh. you know? <laughs> and like get under my skin. <laughs> Especially cause like, you know, I'm doing like DEI trainings and like all this stuff and the other thing. And people just love to like posture. It's all about posturing and who's got the fanciest Black Lives Matter sign on their lawn and like, it's just, it doesn't change. So and like, you look at our history and like people have literally always been like this. And it's like, it's a little daunting. I feel like, like y'all, yeah. I need you as a, as a group to kind of get your shit together. 
an artisanally made Black Lives Matter sign. <laughs> Laser etched, 3D printed. <laughs> I was thinking about like all the white folks with access to whatever, whatever printing, whatever material, whatever, whatever, that we have to be like, honestly, like that's how Ori has survived. Like uh, it's like floating on white guilt because y'all can't just give the money you should be giving. Y'all can't just give the materials you should be giving. So we have to be like, oh, do you want some, you want five ally points if you print out a, a nylon sign for this show? <laughs> like, and like, I feel like it's really like reflected, especially in my grant writing recently. I'm just like, you bitches owe us this money. You know, you've owed us this money. The only reason you have this money is because it's ours to begin with. So give it. And like, I don't know how funders are feeling about it, but I'm ready to like snatch some throats. Like, how are you gonna, like Ford Family Foundation. It's the Ford family. Like T-model, big old man, dick trucks, like all that shit. Like, you know that you're not paying people correctly and that's why you can have a foundation. And like every single foundation is built like that. And we're expected to run around and be like, I made this painting, is it good enough for $5,000? And I'm sick of it. Like it's, it's like, humiliating <laughs> and it's exhausting. But you're still doing it. I have to give you kudos for that. Cause like I got sick of it like two years ago and I just stopped writing grants. I stopped caring, stopped applying. Cause I was just like, the only thing I feel like writing right now is just give me the money. So like. How do you, how did you keep up the motivation to keep doing it? And I trained other people. <laughs> Santi, Sankofa, thank you. <laughs> Touche, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. Like, you know, it's time to like, you know, you have to like develop up and move on and pass on your skills. And that has always been my bag. I don't know if it's, it's like an ADD thing or what, but like, I'm like leadership development because I am tired. Um, and it's great because, you know, folks coming up who don't have as much, much experience or like access or whatever, they don't have like my tiredness, right? They have a little bit of more of that spunk and attitude and they can give that to these funders and I can do the job of like stewarding or protecting them in that. Yeah. But, and I feel like that's how it should be, right? Like, I don't want to be doing this forever. There's like there's these young guns coming up that need this space that need this opportunity that's who I built this for like yeah true last thing I want is like founder syndrome so I'm just like very much in a situation right now where I'm just like okay I'm, I'm the acting director but that means that I am backup for everyone else who's taking over that's my job is to be like mom slash dad and <laughs> make sure all the i's are dotted and the t's are crossed and everyone has their knee pads on and just send them out into the world and like, it feels good to be in that place right now because That's like- a good place to be, yeah. It's like, Yeah. It, it, we, sorry, go ahead. It's an interesting contrast um, when you see like in mainstream like media, people who are doing the, the exact opposite, right? Like they're knocking down the ladders behind them <laughs> so that people can't come up. So <laughs> did you hear about Dave Chappelle? <laughs> Which, fucking Which fucking time? The most recent time. Trans women or poor people or what? Like what? You would think that would be enough, right? But now he is protesting affordable housing in his I, community. 
Yeah. I saw that fucking video and I'm just like, I, mm-hmm. I mean, live long enough to see yourself become the enemy, I guess. Like, that's a fucking, that's just, I was like, the other day I was like, you know, I haven't listened to Block Party in a while. That fucking, that piece by Jill Scott, that's my jam. Let me listen to that. And it took me down a wormhole. I was like, remember when Dave Chappelle was like a human? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Funny is wild. I remember there was this like mad TV sketch in the 90s or something where they were joking about how the government put a special chemical in cash that made like Negroes go crazy. find that i think it was i might have been like orlando jones like that could be what was like a moment like it was it It was like a crossover between like you know it was like the last phalanges of in living color kind of snuck Mm -hmm. in there a little bit Mm -hmm. like i remember deborah what's her name she was a good fucking comedy writer and like a great actress yes we have lost so many talented black women but like yeah now we have snl and we have abbott elementary oh oh my god i love abbott elementary it's so it's first of all it's really sweet but also it's hilarious <laughs> i the office could never it really like, could. it's not if, if they don't get 13 seasons that i can binge watch in a deep depression i'm gonna be pissed <laughs> let them fly <laughs> Um, and the actor, I, I forget his name, but he's Everybody Loves Chris, that actor. His face, oh, that's him! <gasps> yeah. His faces are just chef's kiss. My God. Like the way he stares into the camera, it's just. Jim Halpert couldn't, I'm telling you. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love the way they let the child actor shine because, you know, I'm a youth worker. I'm like, let the babies be good. Let them, let them be great. <laughs> And they're really like commenting on real issues, but it's not like anvil, 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 like over and over again. It's really right. cool. like, you know, it's like black women have nuance or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, honestly, I feel like this is the exact conversation I was like, because I started writing grants just by doing text speech, because I realized that I'm allowed to do things that are easy for my brain. Um, so I'll just lecture my computer and I'll be like, this is why you need to give us money. I'll talk to them like I'm talking directly to a funder and it's worked out. It's been very, very therapeutic. <laughs> but I've basically been just like, let us be great. Like, just like, just give Negroes money. You know, we're creating the culture anyway. You know, we're literally responsible for everything good in your life. Just give us the money. <laughs> like, what's, what's just, the why are you being so dramatic? Just, just hand it over. <laughs> Right. And it's like, I'm begging people. It's like the humiliation of begging someone for money who is already funded an art show featuring the experiences of police officers of color that will tour the entire state. No. I don't know how much money they gave them, but it's too much. And I'm like, y'all, I can't, I just can't let them get that money. You know, I have to at least show them how stupid they're being. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about like, do you, I want to phrase this differently and not be corny. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have, um, how do you feel about the future of Portland? 
at large? Um, well, like most institutions on per Turtle Island, I hope that it won't be a thing in the future. <laughs> Oh, we got to get organized. It's like always the same. Like we got to get organized or we're going to die <laughs> like everybody. <laughs> and like, yeah, it sounds corny, but like organization is going to save us. Like it's the only thing that will, um, especially now that like, you know, I'm doing work in government. Like these folks are fucking assholes and they're goddamn idiots and <laughs> they belong to a death cult. It's like, seriously, like their ideology is so deeply ingrained that like, there's no saving. Like I did DEI education for fucking a decade. None of these people are less racist. Like, <laughs> and I knew that going in. Like, I will take money from all of these institutions, like Squarespace, Open Signal, whoever. I don't care. I'll take your money. I am there for the black people in the room. Mm -hmm. I am not there to make white folks any less racist. I'm not there to make cis folks any more, any less transphobic. That's not my job. That's your job, right? If you wanted to be less transphobic, you would be reading. Like, <laughs> that's nothing I can, you can lead a horse to water, but you know, whatever, whatever. That's not my job. Yeah. I'm there for the one Black person in the room who needs to be told that they're not imagining what's happening to them and that they can quit if they want to. Like, that was my job as like an equity and inclusion, like educator. Like, and I had like white folks singing my praises up and down this, that, and the other way and like getting all of these jobs hither and thither. Mm -hmm. And like, I know that you're just checking off a box. I know that I'm not here to like make any like fucking transcendental, like fucking change in your life. I am not your magical Negro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I know I'm Tubman being like, you can leave Squarespace if you want to. Like, <laughs> I'll help you do your CV. <laughs> They should be paying you $20,000 more than they are, right? Like, that's my job. And I feel like, you know, that, that's my place in the revolution. <laughs> to create safe educational spaces and to, like, I don't know, provide confirming experiences for other Black and brown folks. Do you feel that, because, um, I mean, what I've witnessed in the past, I would say, decade is that people, all people, including Black folks, have been kind of moving center a little bit in this disturbing way. Um, I honestly, I just watched a TikTok that was talking about the Black alt-right pipeline. Oh God. Yeah, no, it's super real. And once she started to talk about it, I was like, oh damn, talking about how basically like they're using all of the same incel talking points for Black men who feel slighted by feminism it's the same, it's the same, like 100% the same rhetoric. And it's really scary yeah. like how deeply it works. And there's all this like, you know, swerfy turfy, like black feminism that's being like basically enshrouded in makeup tutorials. <laughs> I feel like I missed the makeup, um, the makeup artist wave. Cause I don't oh, understand that. <laughs> it's still happening, you know, you know, like high femmes be doing their shit and you know. <laughs> The same way I watch stupid tech videos, you know, <laughs> like I could watch someone put on eyeliner for 45 minutes, but like, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, basically a femme podcast, right? It's some the way that you're intaking information from someone whose identity you align with. Mm. And, you know, they're hitting on all these touch points that like, you know, might touch on pieces of your own like insecurity or ideological failings. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get you in. And 
it's it's spooky scary how like centrist people think they're being centrists they really think and it's like no you're leaning right dude <laughs> like, like there is no center in america and i feel like we get like fooled into thinking that there is this like false sense of like neutrality and like whatever optimism is not the word i'm looking for but you know what i mean but, that's like, the center's not really the center. objectiveness yeah it's, it's like we don't actually have a leftist movement here yeah truly, truly we don't like at best we have like a moderate center yeah i think folks are really disillusioned about that because of like I have a slide in one of my my presentations that says don't trust white, white anarchists <laughs> and it's about talking about Cointelpro and like talking about oh, community. Okay. <laughs> like, but also don't trust fucking white anarchists <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I mean folks who have been like paying attention to like the uprisings like that have happened since the pandemic like and especially even going back to Occupy yeah. Occupy is where I first learned not to trust white anarchists. Like, and we don't even need to go into all of the things. Y'all can Google that yourselves, but all of that shit rolled over because they never took care of any of it in their community. So like all of that problematic, like, you know, abusive ass fucking like leftist behavior, like all of that, that is just like plaguing Portland's political scene never went anywhere. I mean, and we see, we see it in black organizing too. Like we know, we know what went down at SEI. Mm. Like we know all of those things that just keep getting swept under the rug. All of those folks, we protect abusers in our community. Let's not be shy about it. Like black folks love to protect an abuser because you know, we're so fucking traumatized. It's OJ all over again. Mm. Like we're so used to being punished unjustly all the time that we can't handle more of it you know we want to protect ourselves from the outside world we would rather punish each other but we don't actually do that do we we make our kids go get a switch but what do we do with abusers in our community we say don't hang around that uncle we yeah. say turn your rings around but we don't do anything about the problem and i think that's like a really deep shift i see in between like you know queer and like more hetero leaning like black folks mm -hmm. that like we're doing the more marginalized you are the more work you're probably going to do to like undo those things right and the more clearly you're going to be able to see them because of the whole like what did uh Du Bois say the dual consciousness yeah um right it's like we're talking like not just dual we're talking triple we're talking quadruple consciousness here and it it can be it's part of that heartbreak you know of like you're supposed to be like me you're supposed to protect me and yet we're not doing these things for each other and that heartbreak just happens like over and over and over again do you do you feel any possibility of like some sort of like closure in that gap in that chasm that's that i for me it feels like it's gotten larger over the last decade, but maybe that's just my personal anecdotal experience of it. But like, do you feel that there's anything that can kind of precipitate some sort of like, I don't know, some some resolution in that? Oh, the kids. Hmm. Tell you, we must protect the children. <laughs> They're calling this shit out. Like, I, I saw some tweet that was like, I love today's generation. They'd be calling out their racist uncle at Thanksgiving and not giving a fuck. And I'm just like, yes, that's what they're doing. <laughs> we have to let them throw cans. 
let them do what they need to do and protect them. I feel like that's why I'm so passionate as a youth worker. Yeah. Cause I'm just like, they're the ones with the answers. Cause we're tired and we're old and like, we know shit, but it's our job to like, you know, again, put on the knee pads and send them out. Um, and yeah, they're really going to take us there. I believe it. They just need, I, I'm a little worried though, because I feel like I wish that more millennials felt that stewardship that I feel mm-hmm. where there's like, yes, we need to protect the next generation, especially from boomers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, truly though, cause like we're talking about folks who are part of like, you know, a centuries long death cult and they're not coming out of it anytime soon. And the children are seeing this. Yes it clearly they're calling it out but um I also see this weird thing where it's like we grew up with the internet right we remember the before time yeah you remember dial up and all that all those things and like it's so bonkers because like the same folks who are telling us like don't put your information out on the internet are now giving away their social security cards and like getting scammed and like all this other shit and it's like y'all did everyone forget the mid-90s because I, there are things I would take to my grave that people are putting on the internet now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that sense, like I'm seeing like a lot of kids are like getting fucked up by the internet in these ways because they don't have that like lived experience that we all went through with like all, all the horror stories, all the this, that, and the other thing, like discovering a new medium of communication and all that. And like- there, There's shit that happened to me like, as a kid growing up that I'm just, I'm grateful every fucking day that, that there weren't cell phones around to capture it. Like seriously. Every day. I just feel so bad for these kids. I really do. Cause how do you live in that? Like this constant surveillance. Yeah. And like the pressure to produce and be on stage all the time. Yeah. Like you have that, um, that, that phenomenon, uh, growing up younger, faster. Mm. um and the example that was shown to me was like lip smackers when it first came out was marketed towards adult women uh-huh. that was like a woman's product right but now like you see anyone over the age of seven using lip smackers you're like what's going on <laughs> it's because like you know children want to emulate something older all the time all the time all the time and that kind of destroys childhood yeah and so like we have all these kids like trying to be grown-ups trying to do this that and the other thing on tiktok and do whatever whatever and like, what, what does childhood look like now? It's like effectively gone. <laughs> like children aren't allowed to be children for any period of time and it sucks. Yeah. Like, and it's not like black children really have that much of a child window of childhood to begin with. So like, Well, yeah, I'm like the, the fucking virgin whore conundrum of the black youth is yeah even worse because like oh you're growing up too fast (laughs) like act your age this that and the other thing all of these constant like conflicting messages that we get Mm -hmm. the fuck am I supposed to be you know growing up in like a predominantly white area I didn't think I was supposed to be gay because I didn't see gays that look like me I didn't think I was trans Mm -hmm. here in Portland because I didn't know any black trans people like (laughs) and I was like the only trans folks I saw were white and I was like well I'm not that so I must not be trans (laughs) I'm just something else you know and you know that every community I feel like that happens that happens that happens if you don't have enough things to cling to and you know I see that with the young folks like the the need for connection is there right we want it we need it we're humans and they'll get it any way they can whether that's safe or not 
I'm interested in um, this idea of like, you know, the organizing work you do and like building community. Um, but then like this, I feel like we live in such a world of like the individual and like, um, you know, especially like on social media and maybe with like younger people, the idea that like, oh, the world's going to shit. And maybe it's just like about getting yours and like making sure you're good and maybe making sure your family's good. And like, how does that like mindset, like how do you work around that mindset or navigate around that when you're like trying to build community or also trying to like um, counteract all of these, like this individual mindset that's like still seems like, like you were saying this like death cult or this extension of this death cult, which I love this idea of like, because I think there's this like, sometimes when you think about like companies and organizations, you're like, why are they doing these things? But when you're like, oh, well, you know, like thinking about them as a death cult, I feel like it gives like makes sense so much more sense of their actions, but yeah. Well, yeah, cause it's like uh, my, one of my comrades Onya Senwu always says like, capitalism doesn't have a fucking plan. Like what's the plan? What is the end result? It's just like, take, 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 take extraction, extraction, extraction for what? Like at least socialism has an end goal. We want everybody fed, we want everybody educated, we want everybody this, that, the other thing, right? Like there's a goal. Capitalists are just know like what is, and I feel like getting to that point, asking folks, okay, well, what happens next? And usually if they have the individualistic mindset, they don't, they can't answer that question because they're still stuck in the consume, 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 get mine, get mine, get mine. Well, it's okay, well, all right, that's cool for you, but what comes after that? Like, think the thought through. Um, where does that get us? Like, you can have all the toilet paper in the world, but if you don't have like, fucking plumbers and <laughs> construction workers and people who know how to filter fucking water eat it you know like great you're good good on fiber but you're still gonna die <laughs> like um and I don't know how to like honestly if folks can't get that at this point in the pandemic like I don't know that it's my job to proselytize to them around it like I feel like if you're not seeing it at this point you know, I know it's not exactly revolutionary to be like, oh, fuck the rest of them. I'm going to work with people who work with me, but it's a matter of safety at this point. Like, yeah, I'm probably more likely going to work with black and brown, queer and trans folks exclusively because I don't have to do as much education to get them to where we need to be. Right. Or like, you know, if I'm talking to another black person who's like maybe not quite with me ideologically it's gonna be easier for me to bring them with me than it is talking to Theodore, right? I'm not trying to bring Theodore with me, right? I'm <laughs> trying to bring people who, are, who can still be convinced, who can still be brought along. Um, because otherwise, you know, you reach too far back, you're gonna snap your spine trying to educate folks and get them to where you need them to be ideologically to build something with you. And like some people are still at that place. And that's great. The young ones are still like, I want to educate you. I want to make you better. But like old hat, we're like, cool, you have energy for that. That's not where my energy is anymore. You get sick of doing one-on-ones. And like, that's not your place at a certain point. You don't have to be doing one-on-ones because, you know, you've elevated beyond that and your work is, your energy is better spent elsewhere. Are you waiting for me to go, Melanie? Yeah. Gonna, okay. All right. No, I was just making sure. I have, I have more questions. Um, you you kind of touched on this a little bit uh, earlier, but I was curious about um, 
like the new things that are happening at Ori, you spoke a little bit about this like new team that um, Ori has. And I was just yeah, curious about hearing more about that. Yeah, I'm really excited. We have a new curator, Ella Ray. Uh, Asante has been with us for a while as our treasurer and main grant writer, kind of taking over from me. Uh, Teresa, who I'm, I'm not sure if y'all know Teresa Makawi. I think so. Uh, oh, sorry, Muniwaki. Let me not mispronounce their name. Um, but yeah, it's taking over as our programs manager. And they're also with me at the All African People's Revolutionary Party doing programs work. So we've kind of got like this symbiotic uh, relationship going on. And it's really exciting. You know, our first new show just dropped. Um, it's a group show with a bunch of really fucking talented African artists that's up on the website right now. Um, the first leg is actually finishing and then the next ideation is starting on the 15th. So there'll be a new film piece and a new um, uh, written works to go along with it on our website. <clears throat> so yeah, that's gonna be our, we're still like very much exploring like, do we open? What does that look like? You know, do we invite three people who are in the same pod to come into the gallery for an hour and then switch it out? Like, you know, like we're still very much like, what is it to be a gallery safely yeah. right now? Um, and, you know, as far as I've seen other galleries, you're just kind of winging it. And I'm just like, oh, you know, they have posted hours, folks are wearing masks and whatnot, but I'm immunocompromised. So I'm not going to make an a, a event that I can't go into. Right. Um, so we've been asking funders like, hey, can y'all kick in some extra money for testing or, you know, PPE or this, that or the other thing? And folks have been very much like, ooh, I don't know. We're <laughs> like, okay, much like, you know, ASL captioning or, you know, ramps or whatever else, whatever other accessibility thing we might need. This is an accessibility point. Right. Don't put us in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act by not properly supporting us, right? Like that's the line I'm trying to have to take with folks to convince them that we need extra support to do what we're doing. Um, but yeah, aside from like those foibles, like the new team is really, really great. And, you know, we're just trying to be like, we wanna thrive. We're done surviving. Like Ori was surviving up to the point of the pandemic and I feel like we were just about to like get that good shit when we had to close down. And so at this point, we're just like, I need a live people <laughs> to help me with this. So we're very much just like take, playing it by ear, trying to like make sure that everyone has what they need first and foremost, um, that, you know, folks aren't starving and, you know, worried about where they're gonna lay their heads at night, that we're supporting folks in that way. Um, yeah, we're just trying to thrive. And I'm just trying to like, my goal is to get us to $100,000 this year because we deserve it, because our people deserve it. Like, and so that we can just start redistributing money. Like, I think that's what folks are really most excited about is paying people. <laughs> that's what everybody wants to do. We wanna get your art out however we get it out and we want you to get paid. Um, so yeah, that's where, that's where we're headed and I'm excited and like, Ella has done a bang up job of like gathering. I mean, we, it's hard to fail, right? Because we have so much talent. <laughs> um, There's just so many like fucking dope ass artists who are like sitting on projects that aren't funded or who have projects that are done and they just need somewhere to put it. And, you know, it's almost overwhelming because there's just so, we need three more Ori's. That would be dope, but. I mean, to follow up on that, um, I feel like Ori Gallery is kind of one of the only 
sort of um, spaces that's doing what you all are doing. Do you feel that there's a lot of pressure there or like, are you like, how do you feel about that? Like, do you, you said you, there should be three more Ori's and like, I agree. I think it would make it easier for you as a space to, to thrive if there were more. Um, but I also feel like it's because you have so much talent um, with your staff. It's because all of you are probably doing 10 jobs in order to ensure that. Like, do you feel like there is space in Portland or opportunity in Portland for other spaces like that to come up? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, the whole goal with starting Aureas is so that someone could like look at our Google Drive and recreate something better like so I, I hope so <laughs> like that has always been the goal is to that so we're not just creating like a one-off thing so that you know it's something that can be replicable and so that we're creating room for other folks um and that's just been like really important from the jump um I'm even I'm on the um the community advisory council for the intercultural firehouse or the no the interstate firehouse cultural center which they're trying to make into a black arts center. Um, and folks, there have been folks like really big hitters in like the Portland community on this, um, this committee for years now trying to make this happen. And we're right now just at the point where we're like, oh, okay, we have uh, you know, a request for proposals for folks to do a community survey to see what black and brown, or what black folks actually want from this cultural center. Um, so keep an eye out for that. I will definitely be sending y'all that directly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there folks recognize that there is a need for more black arts centers in Portland. And we finally are looking at, you know, some substantial support for one, um, which is really dope. But again, there could be more. And it's like that, that project might not be done for 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So I got in that committee and I was like, okay, cool. So I'm literally working for something I'll never see because I'll probably be dead in five. <laughs> but um but like you know that's what that's the point of organizing is that we're building a world that we won't ever see um so hopefully you know we'll get some more centers sooner than that but you know the need is there yeah. and i definitely feel like if i were to put a shout out to say like hey we're starting a second space and we need folks to run it there would be an overwhelming response of folks to support like i'm ready to train like eight more grant writers i'm ready to bring up eight more curators like we have these skills and so intrinsically, we have so many of the skills that are necessary for this because creativity is so, it's sacrosanct, right? It's, it's just a part of being African. <laughs> like we create, that's just it. Africa creates, we create, that's it. Like that's the end of the story. So don't, just let us be good. Just let us be great and like get out of our way. Um, that like, you know, we don't, I feel like folks, other institutions don't see like, why should a poet be in charge of your financial handlings? But we understand that. We understand the importance of why we need different thinkers yeah. and artistic thinkers in our administration and why that's so important. Um, I don't know, our folks, we just have so much skill. I get pissed. <laughs> I just get so pissed. Do you feel that, like, when did you start Ori Gallery? You and Maya? Uh, we, Maya and I first sat down on our living room table in 2017. 
Do you feel now in 2022 that the landscape has softened towards the establishment of spaces like that? Or do you feel like it's very, it would very much still require extraordinary people like you all to open another space like that? To jump through the same hoops um, and do all of those things. I think that, um... I mean, it's definitely, I think the money is flowing a little easier than it was. Um, the purse strings have loosened up and I feel like I personally am doing fewer backflips and tap dances. Okay. And that may be a shift in my personal attitude because I'm very much a fawner. Like when we talk about flight, fright, freeze or fawn, like my first instinct is to smooth things over and appeal to everybody's like central nervous systems and try to do that. But I definitely feel like I'm doing less of that. Um, and that um, Asante and I joke a lot that, you know, the money is controlled by the men, but the white women of these financial institutions are the ones who hold the purse strings. Like, right, like Ford may own his factory, but Helen is running the Ford Foundation, right? Those are names I'm making up. Please don't quote me on these things. Um, <laughs> Um, and that's like, it, that's just like the weird like dichotomy of like the, the funding world, right? Is that you have all these like liberal leaning white women who think that they're doing the right thing by this, that, or the other thing, but you know, they are still, they're still upholding the system, right? Just because they give us a smiling face while they're writing the check and they like understand how hard it is for us to be doing these things. Um, they're not questioning their lawyers on our reporting requirements, right? They're not arguing for more funding. They're not tearing down anything they should be tearing down. And I would say that's, that's the same in government, right? You find, <laughs> you find people who are like, oh, we're liberal Portland, we want to do this, and la 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 la. But oh, no, no, we can't approve larger grants for first time Black homeowners. Or we can't do this, or we can't do that, or this takes too long. But meanwhile, y'all have executive orders. You do shit emergently whenever you feel like it. You change the rules on us. And the rules only apply when it's shit that we wanna get done. Um, yeah, that hasn't changed. I think I've just gotten more bold about being direct <laughs> and just being like, y'all, this is too much. Yeah. Is that working? We'll see. <laughs> Got one branch in the bucket. <laughs> like, um, and I feel like, you know, I've, honestly, since taking on this like creative laureate role has been like, it's been really interesting because I think the, the government and, you know, uh, council members really want, um, they want a think piece, you know, they want, oh, this is something cool that we're doing that's like art related and everyone will like it. They're not expecting me to go in there being like, give me money. like, <laughs> And just like, you know, asking, like, I'm trying to put together a, an art show with like folks at the C3PO camps and just getting what I need to get from the government has been so hard. It's been like, if this were Ori, I could just ask someone in community to go build them a bathroom ramp real quick and pay for it and it would be done. Like we needed to re, we needed to um, fucking relocate a you know, houseless man who was sleeping on our front porch at Ori for a while. And guess what? We did that with no police intervention or institutional intervention. We just did it with community. 
And I think that's the most frustrating thing is knowing how quickly and efficiently we can get things done together. And then like having people with lots of money being like, you can't do it that way, which is a lie. Yeah, that's the, one of the things I've been learning more recently is just like how arbitrary so many of these rules are and then how like I feel like they always make it seem like it's these like machines or like big moving things that are incapable of changing. But then, you know, it's like people deciding to like bend the rules when they want to bend them for themselves or being like, oh, we can actually add more things or we can change this thing. And it's like how um, yeah, arbitrary it is about these like rules and like who they want to enforce them on versus like who they can yeah, like bend the rules for, um, which is so wild. But you see that it's just like people, um, if they want to help out, they can, but it's usually them like wanting to be like maintain the rules or power or whatever. Right. And it's like, it's so disconcerting to see like marginalized folks who get into positions of power and don't do the thing we wish they would do. And I feel like that's one of my biggest fears is like getting access to power and privilege and then getting lazy with it, um, which is why I'm so like, I don't know, feverish about like staying connected with folks. And I'm just like, tell me if I'm fucking up, please. <laughs> like like I, I, I think my worst nightmare is feeling like, you know, someone from community couldn't ask me something directly or couldn't bring something to my attention because they felt like I wouldn't be responsive or accountable. Um, and I wish more other people had that fear. <laughs> I wish more <laughs> of my colleagues at the government had that fear. <laughs> but I'm just like, y'all don't know what real accountability is. You only know punishment. Mm. We only know punishment and shame. Mm. And like, while that may be effective sometimes if you're trying to get something specific done, I would love to shame Theodore out of office, but like, <laughs> that's not helpful for like actual community building and like there's this I feel like there's this notion in white circles that like everyone has to be like fucking kumbaya all the time and that like to get anywhere everyone has to agree exactly on the same thing and no one thinks about like diversity of tactics or like you know Africans you know I don't have to fuck with you necessarily to fuck with you mm -hmm. right like I can be in lockstep with your liberation and not be your best friends and that is necessary because that that whole toxic positivity is is fucking toxic. We know it. It's gaslighty and it's abusive, and it's how people get away with fucked up ass behavior. But yeah, I'm just trying to spread that like I don't have to fuck with you to fuck with you. And that's like the basis of a lot of my organizing. With like all the stuff you do for your like day job, and then like all the stuff you do for Ori, like. What, is, what do you do to like recharge or like what's your like time off look like or how do you like relax or have fun? Or? Um, uh, dancing is like my joy and smoking a lot of weed. Yeah. <laughs> um, playing a lot of video games. Um, I just, my favorite right now, I started playing Streets of Rage 4, which is like a, a resurgence of a childhood favorite, but basically you get to be like, a badass like black femme musician running around beating up cops. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really, I don't know how Nintendo made this a game. But, like, oh, wow. You literally get to beat up cops and trust fund kids are the main enemies. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't play video games, but I want to now. <laughs> like, hey, listen, I got some rapid tests. You come over, we'll make a thing. <laughs> um. 
What is your art's origin story? Oh, I come from a family of artists. Oh. We're just a bunch of freaks. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> like most of us are gay. We're all artists. My grandfather was a painter. Um, also, I had like two PhDs. Fucking wild ass nigga. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because no, speaking of family origins, like my um, my cousin was doing some family research and um, into like our ancestors, and we are the descendants of uh, Alexander and Milo Manley. Um, who were um, Alexander Manley ran the uh, the Daily Record in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the only black daily newspaper in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bless his heart, he got ran out of town for talking sideways. <laughs> He's basically saying that like white women don't need protection from black men because they've been sleeping with us for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and local white supremacists didn't like that and ran him out of town and like burned the town to the ground. Yes. And there was, there was a massacre. Yeah. And like oh. black folks had to like flee in the river. It was wild ass shit. And like we went back to Wilmington, North Carolina for the anniversary mm-hmm. to meet other descendants of survivors who had stayed there and like connect with family history and like talk to folks about like the current reparations movement. And I don't know how I got on this subject, but. <laughs> oh, <I've been> <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, family, family lineages and that's, like that's a pretty good one. I think that's yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no. that's, that's a, one of my main projects right now, and that, that was actually actually part of a, the photo project that I did for this latest show. Was I went back and we documented a lot of, we had like a soil ceremony to like, um, to honor the soil where you know our families were lost. We had um, there was a lost headstone that was finally made for like someone who was lost, like a different family of descendants. Um, went to like a hundred year old cemetery that like had like my ancestors in it and shit. And like, ooh, let me talk about the difference between organizing in the North and the South and the way that black folks move. That was like a fucking eye opener for me. Um, You have 200 year old cemeteries across from each other and one has a rusted chain link fence protecting it. And the other has like a brick and mortar wall (laughs) with like clean mortar on it, right? Like. That's just like one example, right? Of like that, that mm-hmm. like generational shit that we're still dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like reconnecting to that legacy has been like a real big part of my work lately. And like, you know, because I come from like a really fucking estranged family with like a lot of abuse, it's been like really powerful to be like, oh no, okay, this is an ancestor. This is a specific ancestor that I have that I can point to, that I can like trace my lineage and my history. Because, you know, for a lot of American Black folks, that's just not, that's not the game, right? We don't have that. Um, so I think reconnecting with that and like through photography and art and kind of finding that family lineage of like, oh, we have been loudmouth Negroes for a very long time. <laughs> we have paid for it dearly generationally. Because um, he was like, we had generational wealth. Like I would have generational wealth right now if it weren't for white folks burning everything we had to the ground. Like my, they were basically running what was the go puff of the day. They had like a livery, which is like a delivery system. They just deliver things. That's all they do. So like my fucking great, great grandfather was running go puff like and Twitter of his day. Like, <laughs> like the daily record was black Twitter. That's how black folks knew what was going on. <laughs> like um, we just forget about these lineages and like, 
that shit, I feel like runs a direct line into the work that I'm doing for my folks today. Because even though he was white passing, right? He escaped because he was able to pass as white. Um, but he still did things for his people, right? He still knew where his duties and obligations lay, even though he had the choice to be a white man, somewhat. Um, but he still chose to make things for black people and be a staple in the black community. So like, I really, really carry that with me, even though like, you know, I clearly cannot pass as white and like, I don't have the same privileges that he had. Like, I still have that sense of duty, that sense of, you know, something bigger than myself, something for my people that will reach beyond that. And like, he's still a hero in Wilmington, North Carolina. Like people still know who he was and they still know what the daily record was. And there's still, there's still a daily black newspaper that took over after the daily record shut down. That's like almost a hundred years old. I'm forgetting the name of it at the moment, but like, there's still like, you know, a black editor somewhere making that daily newspaper in North Carolina and God damn it, if I don't fucking support them. Um, but yeah, I think so like traveling back and forth um, between Portland and Wilmington, um, and like building work off of that and like using that sense of like a platform for what a national movement is gonna look like in like a practical way. Yeah, sorry, I've got off on a tangent. I don't know how we're doing for time. <laughs> That's not a tangent at all. Yeah, I know, no, it's super fascinating. Yeah, um, I know due to a certain someone here, we have a hard stop in four minutes. <laughs> so I think we're gonna close out now because I'm pretty sure the next question I was going to ask is going to open a whole new thing, which, whatever, we can talk off the record. <laughs> I have to pick up a chicken coop, getting one for free. Oh, cute! So, yeah, I'm going to start raising chickens and ducks. Oh my gosh, I, <laughs> can I come pay your chickens? Yeah, 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 you, you oh, definitely can. Chickens are so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they need so much protection. They're dumb and they have little personalities and they like to cuddle. Yeah, I'm ready to give chickens so much love. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a bird person. I like my stepfather ran a bird rescue um, when I was little in San Francisco. So we ended up at one point we had like 20 parrots um, in an aviary in our home. So I'm a crazy bird lady for sure. Yeah, oh yeah. I want to put up like dinosaur posters to remind them of their like their ancestors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my I don't know if y'all know my my chest tattoo is the Archaeopteryx. It's the first fossil they found that linked birds and dinosaurs. Oh wow. Yeah. That's cool. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess yeah. we're gonna we're gonna close out now with parting words. Max, what are your parting words? Um, yeah, this is this has been so so much fun. Um, thank you to our guests. Thank you, Rue, um, for coming, spending time with us, talking to us, catching us up on everything you're up to. Um, all your work is amazing and super inspiring. And um, that turn project is definitely gonna study and learn um, from all the work you do. Ori is amazing and a constant inspiration to us. Um, so yeah, it was super amazing to have you here. Um, I feel really honored. And um, thank you to Melanie. Um, it was always nice seeing you on Zoom. Um, always <laughs> nice chatting uh, on the podcast. And yeah, um, thanks for everybody that was listening. <laughs> All right, that's that's hard to follow, but um, 
Thank you, Rue, for joining us on this Sunday morning, afternoon. Um, it, as always, it was just really nice to talk to you and to hear you talk about your work, which I, I don't think I've done that before. So that was great. <laughs> um, like Max said, I mean, we're just really big fans um, of everything that you've done in Portland and what you contribute here and what you give. Um, and we very much kind of look to you as like a model for our work, um, like for real. So thank you for that. Um, and Max, always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in, in person one day, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. And pet the chickens. Yeah, well, thank you for having me so much. And like the mutual admiration club is real. Cause like, I definitely like y'all have been like a staple and like, a, a I don't know, a, a pillar for me as well. And like, definitely make me feel like less alone in this work. And yeah, it's just grateful. Hell yeah. All right. Well, bye y'all. Bye y'all. <laughs>